A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are looking at the extraordinary adventures of Adele Blanc Sec from 2010. In terms of the format of this episode, as I'm sure will be entirely unsurprising to most of my audience by this point, we will start with a little look at the background information on the film, then there will be a section on the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the film. I will also say that for this episode I am going to try very hard to avoid spoilers as I do feel that this is a film people should go out of their way to see. So if you are a fan of this film and you're a bit confused as to why I haven't mentioned something, that's probably why. Anyway, without any further ado, let me get on with my dramatic intro. Right. You are an avid fan of the world-famous reporter, explorer and writer Adele Blanc-Sec, whose obsession may be bordering on stalking. You watch in fascination as she trots the globe, eagerly reading about her fascinating adventures. However, little do you know that you will be part of her next excursion, as she attempts to bring back a mummy from the dead. You have officially become a part of The Extraordinary Adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec. Okay, so as I kind of alluded to earlier, let's start with some of the background information on this film. To begin with, it's worth noting that this film is a French language film, uh, it's subtitled, and it's based off of the comics of the same name written by Jacques Tardy. I, I will say to any of my French listeners out there, I really do apologise if I'm butchering the pronunciation of words. Um, I do not know French as well as I should do, especially considering how big France is in the world of Egyptology, but I will do my best. The film, in terms of like the budget, it was made for $30 million, and it was a success, but not a massive success, because 
it made $34 million at the box office. So there are actually some nice little, I suppose, sort of Easter eggs in this film. So to begin with, part of the film towards the end actually takes place in the Louvre in Paris. And the way they present it, because it's set in 1912, is the courtyard there doesn't actually have the big sort of glass pyramid in it, which is quite a nice little detail because obviously that wasn't there in 1912. And it wouldn't be there until 1989. So I quite like that. Also, the director for this film, Luc Bezon, is also the director for The Fifth Element. And both films have a character in them called Aziz. So in this one, Aziz is actually Adele Blancsec's guide when you first see her in Egypt. In terms of the cast, Matthew Amaric, also known for Grand Budapest Hotel, and Quantum of Solace plays De Levolt. Jean-Paul Roof uh, plays Justin de Saint-Hubert. Philippe Nahon plays Professor Menard. Gilles Lelouch plays the inspector, Albert Caponi. And Louise Bourguin plays our main character, Adèle Blanc-Sec. Right, so we've now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So, in this part, I'm just going to talk about what the film does well and poorly in terms of history. The first time we see Adele Blogsek, she travels to a tomb and climbs down into it. She then starts talking about how, when bodies are prepared, they're placed on an altar and they have the organs removed, and then the organs are placed into jars. This is, I mean, more or less right. I mean, yeah, the jars are obviously the canopic jars, that's what she's referring to. Obviously, it's missing out a few bits, like for instance a removal of the brain. However, she then goes on to say that the organs are powdered down when they're put into the, the jars. This is incorrect. So, I mean, it does depend on what time period we're looking at, but this team was supposed to come from the Ramesside period, and generally what would actually happen is you'd have the organs removed from the body. They would then be treated much like the body was, wrapped up in linen as well and then placed in the canopic jar because our idea was to preserve them so you wouldn't powder them down that wouldn't really make any sense in that context she then goes on to claim that after this was all done the body would be placed in this machine that would wrap the body in 20 layers of bandages while squirting oil between each layer um this is less accurate although in terms of the oil part i do kind of get what she's talking about so basically, very often the bandages would be sort of treated with some kind of resin, like maybe tree sap, something like that. So it might be myrrh, for instance, if they're very rich. And the idea was that it would, it, it would firstly help the bandages to smell nicer, but it would also help them to stick so that they can be wound around the body easier. It wasn't always the case. Uh, there's plenty of mummies out there where the bandages aren't treated. They're just wound around the body. It really depends on what type of mummification is being done and how much has been spent on it. In terms of the number of layers of bandages, again, that's very subjective. It depends on the individual, how wealthy they were, how important they were, things like that. So, for instance, we'll go with a famous one, Tutankhamun. He had enough bandages wrapped around him to stretch from one end of a football pitch to the other. So, quite a lot there. <laughs> But, you know, that wasn't necessarily true for everyone. It, it just depends, really. In terms of, like, the weird automatic machine they have that wraps the body, no. 
that's that's nonsense. That's not an Egyptian invention. Also, as I've kind of mentioned quite a few times in this series, there's quite a few sort of traps and things in the um, the tomb. And again, these are very much just a, a Hollywood trope. That's, of course, not to say that the ancient Egyptians didn't try and defend their tombs in the Ramesside period. So the late New Kingdom, for instance, in fact, the New Kingdom in general, generally the, the idea was to sort of hide the tomb so that it can be found by tomb robbers. That's why you actually have, uh, for instance, a bit further south than where we are in Egypt in this film at the moment, you had the Valley of the Kings because it was a hidden location that wasn't easily accessible. Also, you had things like filling the tunnels with rubble to make them hard to navigate, putting up false walls, that kind of thing. However, in the film, there are quite a few images of Capri pushing Ra, the sun god, up into the sky. And again, this is something I've talked a lot about in this podcast. For Ra, the idea was he was born in the east each day. He travelled across the sky growing older, and then he'd sink into the west, into the underworld, and then travel through the underworld. And what's actually really interesting is he's supposed to have some, like, protective power as he's travelling across the, the sky. And so, to the Egyptians, nighttime was actually the most dangerous time because it was when demons could come out and cause mischief and things like that. The, the, the job of Capri here each morning was to actually... So he's sort of like a, a, a scarab beetle or a dung beetle type thing. The idea is he would roll the sun out from the underworld, much like a dung beetle rolls its ball of dung along the ground. I spoke a fair amount on this, actually... I think a couple of episodes ago when I did an episode on the film Scarab. So if you are interested in this, maybe listen to that episode, though I feel I've covered mostly what has been said there. However, in the film, Adele Blancsec, she basically sees an image of Capri in the tomb and he's pushing the sun up and she claims that death is the only way to birth. And this is sort of like a bit of a sentiment when it comes to Egyptian religion, especially when it comes to Ra, because he's he's destined to be in an eternal cycle of being born in the east, travelling through the sky, casting down his protective light on the world. Um, and as he's travelling across the sky, he starts as quite young and he grows old until he dies and then sinks into the underworld. He then travels through the underworld and gets reborn in the east. And, well, the cycle continues night and day after night and day after night and day. And what's quite cool here, I'm going to explain a little bit of something I've mentioned a few times, but I don't think I've ever really properly gone into detail in it. And that's the idea of the field of reeds, which normally I just say it's kind of likened to heaven, like in a modern context. So basically, there's supposed to be caverns in the underworld. And the idea is the dead in these caverns are that they're dormant, basically, until Ra passes through. And then his light brings everything to life. And all of the people there live for an entire lifetime in that one hour it takes to travel through that one cavern. And then when he's travelled through the gate on the other side of the cavern, they all get plunged back into darkness and they become dormant again. Ra then travels through another cavern where, where there's more dead and then it's their turn to come to life and live for an entire lifetime in one hour. And again, the idea is that this is an eternal cycle. He will pass through these caverns night after night. The dead will rise, live an entire lifetime in that one hour. And then 
become dormant and then the next night you will travel through and then the next and it's supposed to go on basically for an eternity the reason i i say that the field of reeds can kind of be likened to heaven rather than being an exact replica is because heaven's generally seen as quite you know this perfect place where everything is is great and perfect where with the field of reeds it's a little bit different so basically the egyptians there's a common misconception that they were obsessed with death when in reality it's more of a case of that they absolutely loved life and they wanted life to continue after death so the field of reeds they're just doing they're doing the exact same things they would have done when they were alive on earth they're just doing them in the underworld essentially and that's not to say they wouldn't have more luxuries and things like that so for instance i've spoken in a few episodes about shabtis which um they were essentially servant figures and the idea then was that in the afterlife they would come to life and they'd be there to serve the deceased so the deceased did want help they did want an easier life in the afterlife but they were still more or less doing the same things they would have been doing on earth when they were alive just maybe with one or two luxuries in some cases anyway moving on a little bit when they do finally get into the burial chamber there's like treasure everywhere first things first that i know of there's only really been two tombs that have been found intact in ancient egypt or at least like big ones anyway uh the first is well the one everyone knows it's tutankhamun and the second one is from the 21st dynasty and that's the tomb of Pusenis the first what's really cool about this tomb is i think it might be the only one that's gone completely unscathed or at least pharaonic tomb anyway that's gone completely unscathed by any tomb robbery whatsoever unfortunately the tomb is it's quite near to tanis and that's quite a wet area and the tomb does have a lot of water damage but it's still a phenomenal find and honestly his coffin is absolutely beautiful so in the 21st dynasty there was a habit of making the coffins out of silver rather than gold and they look very unique and really nice to be honest i really do urge you to just type in percentage the first coffin and you just do a google search you can see it quite easily it really is quite striking anyway getting a little bit off of topic as seems to be a habit with this episode um back to the idea that so they found all this treasure in the tomb one thing that's quite noticeable is there's a lot of coins amongst the treasure and this this is not accurate at all so this is supposed to be the burial place of patmosis who's in the film at least i mean he's a made-up character but in the film he's the personal doctor of ramesses ii arguably the person who brought coinage to egypt was darius the first who lived a about six or seven hundred years after Ramesses II. I mean, there are arguments that coins came to Egypt slightly before. I think it's probably more likely they came properly into Egypt slightly after that, because you don't really get coins being commonly used until about the Ptolemaic era, really. It's also worth noting that the mummy's supposed to be the personal doctor of Ramesses II. He's not royalty. He's definitely not the pharaoh. And yet, on his coffin, he has a royal beard, which he wouldn't have had because that was only for the pharaoh. Adele also goes on to claim that every tomb in Egypt has a secret passage 
leading out of it. And again, this is nonsense. That's just not true. As I've kind of already said, the mummy in this film is called Patmosis. That I know of, there aren't anyone in ancient Egypt called that. But I did like have a look, just because I wanted to have a bit of fun. I did look into what the name could potentially mean. So it's a little bit tricky with ancient Egyptian because when you're looking at hieroglyphs, generally you don't have vowels in the middle of words. So a lot of the time, the way we know how they're pronounced is actually through uh, Coptic, which is essentially the language that Christians in Egypt use. And it's got a very fascinating history to be honest because well essentially it's hieroglyphs but written in greek script so the idea was essentially um early christians when they came into egypt they didn't want to use hieroglyphs because hieroglyphs it's a sacred form of writing and obviously it's not christian sacred and they didn't so they didn't want to use it so instead what they did was they took the egyptian language and they started writing it in greek script that's still spoken today, so although there have been changes, as is inevitable, like, I mean, you only need to go back 500 years in England, and you can see how the language sounds completely different and is often completely unrecognisable. But the point is, we it allows us to still have an idea of what ancient Egyptian would sound like. But the point also is that when you're reading hieroglyphs, there aren't these vowels in the middle of the word, so... There are also educated guesses of what vowel would go there. So it might be an A and it might be an E. So my ability to figure out what it might mean does come up with a few different possibilities. So Pat, it may possibly mean elite, but that might be more like Pat. Uh, it could also mean loaf of bread, ironically, or it could mean sky. On the other side of it, Moses means born of. So for instance, Ramesses means born of Ra. Therefore, Pat could technically mean born of the elite. It could technically mean born of the sky. Or my personal favourite, it could technically mean born of a loaf of bread. That's the one I choose to believe. Realistically, though, what's actually happened here is the writers have come up with a, a vaguely Egyptian sounding name. <laughs> anyway, moving on. At one point in the film, one of the characters who's called Marie Joseph Esperandiu uh, claims that after death, the whole body shrinks and locks itself in the mind. He claims that by communicating with the mind, he can raise the dead. And so he's he's going to do that to a mummy in the film. In this case, it's Pat Morsis. Sorry if that's a small spoiler. I feel like you are watching the Mummy Movie podcast, so you can probably guess that a mummy's going to rise from the dead at some point. I mean, realistically, it doesn't really make sense for ancient Egypt because... Well, during the mummification process, they removed the brain. So it might be a bit of a pedantic point, but you can't really communicate with the brain if it's been destroyed, surely. After this point, and I will say there are a few little spoilers. I'd say I'm not ruining the film, but a few little bits here. Uh, so we have Pat Molsis, who's risen from the dead. I love him. He's such a good character. So he claims that the personal doctors of the pharaoh never left the pharaoh's side and were even buried with them this is complete nonsense it, it, it's just not true whatsoever he then later on goes on to claim that kindness was very important during his dynasty first things first in the 19th dynasty you know when he was living they didn't really have a concept of what a dynasty was 
Uh, to them, essentially, what you had was a long line of pharaohs, one connecting the other in a completely pure bloodline. The idea of dynasties didn't really come around until the Ptolemaic period when you had a guy called Manetho. He was basically a, uh, a Ptolemaic priest, and he's also the first man to write a chronological history of ancient Egypt. And it was him who actually split the periods of Egyptian history into dynasties. So, realistically, as I said, Patmosis wouldn't have really had a concept of what a dynasty would have been. However, the idea that kindness was very important to the ancient Egyptians isn't necessarily wrong. So, you had these things called wisdom texts. And basically, they were texts that told people how to behave and how to act in an ethical way. And kindness was part of it. The idea that you don't just think of yourself, that you help others. That's that's very much part of what they are about. They're about acting in a way that is proper. So I will give them a point there. That is, that is accurate. Patmosis then sees Adele Blancsec's um, sister. And she's basically, uh, the one of the, the storyline of this film is that Adele's trying to raise the mummy from the dead because he's a doctor so that he can cure her sister from an injury she's had because she's basically been in a state of unconsciousness for about five years and he asks if she fell off of a camel here this is a bit weird i mean in fairness you often get like people who say there were no camels in ancient egypt until about 500 bce this isn't technically true uh, camels were introduced into Egypt a long time before that. It's even possible you're going back to, say, 5,000 years ago they were introduced. But they weren't really domesticated and there weren't that many of them. They didn't really become common as a form of transport until much later in Egyptian history. Probably around about the time when the Persians took over. So, although it's not necessarily wrong for him to say, did she fall off of a camel... I don't think this is where his mind would have instinctively gone to. He'd have more likely said something like, did she fall off of a donkey? As, well, donkeys, even in the Ramesside period, were still the main form of transportation. You did have horses and things like that around this time, and there are some instances of them being ridden as they would be nowadays, but they were more used for chariots and things like that, and... Even at this time, they were sort of seen as quite a sort of a status symbol, where donkeys were the common form of transportation. Patmosis also claims that he had been in his tomb for 5,000 years. This is a common thing with these films. They, they like throwing out just big numbers randomly. But if he was the doctor or even alive at the time of Ramesses II, He's more likely been around in the tomb for about 3,200 years. Finally, in the film they have the body of Ramesses II in the Louvre, and this isn't correct at all. So, to begin with, in 1912, Ramesses II's body was at Cairo, and it would only even briefly be in France in 1976 when it was being treated. It's also worth noting that when you do see the coffin of Ramesses II, it's quite clearly actually the coffin of Tutankhamun. 
And in fact, even at one point, they show one of the cartouches on the coffin, and it says Neb Kepere, which is one of the throne names of Tutankhamun. Okay, I think I'm going to leave the historical accuracy section there. There are one or two other bits that I, I would realistically like to talk about, but I feel I'm bordering on too many spoilers at that point, and like I've said, I really don't want to ruin this film. I do think people should go out of their way to see it, so we'll leave it there. Basically put though, when it comes to history, this film is not great. It does get a few bits right here and there, but they're generally pretty obvious things like saying that, well, for instance, the body had to be put on a surface when you're taking out the internal organs, and that the organs went into canopic jars but even then they say that the organs were powdered down which they weren't on the other side of it they in terms of an accuracy they talk about where you see coins in a ramicide tomb which is completely wrong it talks about a machine being used to help wrap the body which again is incorrect and like many of these films they like randomly throwing out dates that well i mean like five thousand years that realistically mean nothing and don't relate to Ramesside Egypt whatsoever. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, so we've now arrived at the review section of this episode. So, as usual here, I'm just going to talk about what's good, what's bad, and rate the film out of 10. So, we'll start with the good parts. To begin with, the film is just so eccentric and unique, and I really love it for that. Everything about it is just eye-catching. I also really love the uh, makeup used on Marie Joseph Esperandu. I really apologise if that's badly pronounced. As, well, his character, he looks very, very creepy, but... He's not a bad guy, and it's just nice when that happens. It's nice when you get a good character in a film who doesn't stereotypically look good, because as much as this film is very fantasy-esque and his look is not really realistic, it is realistic that your looks don't necessarily define your personality, even though like there would be some influence there. Um, also, at the beginning of the film, he essentially raises a... It's like a pterodactyl from from the dead. Well, he, he raises it from an egg that's millions of years old. And it's just great because 
when he's controlling it, he's running around his room, squawking and waving his arms. And there's no way of watching that and not finding it a little bit funny and a little bit bizarre. But to be honest with you, he's definitely not the only good character. I, I can't really think of any character in this film that I didn't really like. For instance, let's go with another one. You get Detective Albert Capone. Um, and he's got like this great side story where basically throughout the entire film, he goes for, I think it's over a day without eating. And it's just a stupid little thing that's really entertaining. And then you've got another character, the, the one that I did my dramatic intro about, Andre Zaborowski. Again, another really good character. He, he seemed, you know, he's basically a sort of weirdly likeable but slightly creepy guy. He, he's basically a bit too clingy and a bit too obsessed with Adele Blanc Sec. But you do just get the sense that he, he is a very sweet and nice person. So, for instance, quite close to the beginning of the film when he's writing her sort of a bit of a love letter, he, he basically goes... But what if she's married? Or worse, she's widowed. And I just think that's quite sweet because you can sort of tell that he genuinely cares about her happiness, even if he's going about things in completely the wrong way and in a bit of a cringy way. But again, you know, that is kind of the point of his character. And in fact, that's kind of what makes a lot of the characters quite good. So take Adele Blanc-Sac, for instance. Again, a very well-meaning character, a character who clearly in her heart is good, but she's also arrogant and way too competitive, and that's kind of, in a way, almost why she's an entertaining character, because she has these flaws, and all of these characters, they're flawed, but they're likeable. And it's something that I do kind of wish we would see a little bit more in mainstream films, because Especially recently, there's been this whole thing where you get these perfect characters and they're just so boring. Also, this one's going to sound a little bit like a negative to begin with, but I'll explain why it's a positive after. So, the CGI in this film is... it's pretty bad, basically. But it's also quite charming. I feel like good CGI in this film wouldn't have really worked. It wouldn't have worked with the tone of the film. And the way they've done the CGI is quite stylized. So the animation of them, say, like the pterodactyl as it flies through the sky, is quite jerky. And it kind of gives the impression, and I feel it was done quite deliberately, of those old, like, stop-motion 1950s films. And I personally find those old films charming. I, I quite like them. And this just kind of gave me the same feel. So... As much as I often don't like CGI in films, I felt this was an appropriate use of it that actually added to the final product. I know for a fact that not everyone agrees with me on this because I've, I've seen some of the reviews and, well, some people have commented that they really didn't like the animation and that's fine. You know, we all have different opinions. But for myself, I felt it worked for the film. I will also say that when it comes to the story for the film, I just thought it was all very sweet and a bit sad. It's quite a simple story as basically, I don't want to give too much away, as I've said quite a few times during this episode, but it's about an injury to Adele Blancsec's sister 
And Adele going to great lengths to cure her and to stop her from being unconscious. And I just think it plays very well into Adele Blancsec's kind of flaws and how she is aware of them and she's always sort of trying to make up for them. And I think that is why she is such a likeable character because she is very self-aware and she's always trying to be better. In fact, there was a point towards the end of this film where I did feel like, I didn't cry, but I did feel some a slight amount of tears in the bottom of my eyes. That being said, though, I, I did also almost cry at Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, <laughs> so probably not the best judge when it comes to that. Maybe take my description of the film there with a pinch of salt. Anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> I do just generally think this film was really funny as well. Like, for instance, throughout the film, there's so many instances where Adele Blancsec should have just gone straight to jail, and she just seems, like, weirdly immune to it. They just, you know, just kick her out into the street, and then that's it. The film just continues. Like, okay, um... It's a, it's a small spoiler, but it's not a big one. There's, there's a part of the film where... Adele Blancsac needs to break someone out of jail because they're going to go to death row. And so she keeps going into the jail with different disguises on to try and break him out. She keeps getting caught and chucked out of the jail. And I feel like with a lot of films, they'd have this scene and I'd be rolling my eyes a little bit and being a little bit kind of like, okay, this is a bit rubbish. But they commit to it so wholeheartedly that it's just... It's just undeniably very, very funny. And, like, there's also just, like, lots of little bits in it that just add to it as well. Like, for instance, at one point, she almost rescues them from the jail. Bear in mind, they're on death row. And they just kind of go, oh, I'll come back, in a, come back a bit later. I, I just want to lie in. And like, I'm sorry, but it's just, it's just really funny to watch. I also really enjoyed the way the film seemed to actively go against any mummy trope whatsoever. And, you know, I'm not saying that mummy tropes are necessarily bad. I think in the right films they're very appropriate, but this was definitely the right film to actively go against them. I also just generally thought that the structure of the film really kept you guessing as to what was going to happen next, because it did definitely have a formula. Um, it's one you probably see quite early, that Adele Blancsac, she multiple times throughout the film, almost gets what she wants. But not quite. But even when she doesn't get what she wants, it does move the plot forward. So you're always kind of guessing what's going to happen next. And you never can entirely get it right. Which is quite nice to see. And I think that's actually a lot harder than is realised. I think the film makes it look quite effortless. I will also say that, again, I know I've spoken about how I love all of the characters in this film. But Pat Moses is he's just adorable so the the mummy that she's trying to raise from the dead he he's adorable <laughs> finally like i think the most important thing with films for me at least is how you feel when you finished watching it and i will admit this film made me feel like as the credits were rolling i felt really fulfilled i felt very happy it, yeah it was just a very sweet very wholesome slightly sad film that just left me feeling really really happy that's the only way of putting it unfortunately though now we do have to talk about the bad parts 
And I will admit I'm being a little bit nitpicky here as, well, as you probably guessed, I quite like this film. <laughs> I will say, to begin with, I felt the, the beginning of the film was quite sudden. Like, there's a lot happening all at once and there's a lot of jumping between characters and it takes a while for you to get your bearings about what's actually happening. I'm not entirely sure how they would have done this film with out making the beginning like this and I do think it benefits the film as a whole but it does make the, the beginning of the film quite awkward. I will also say there are one or two scenes that I don't entirely think fit the tone of the film and normally this is where you have people dying as I'm not necessarily against people dying in films I think sometimes it's very appropriate I think fight scenes are fine but for this film I for me, at least, I don't think it entirely worked and I don't think it fit very well. But on the upside, that's sort of it in terms of the bad parts of this film. In terms of the reviews, critically, this film did quite well. Like, it has, I think it's 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, although it does have an audience score of only 54. And on IMDb, it has a score of... I think it's 6.3 out of 10. Generally, the consensus is that it is a fun film, but some people, I guess, they, they just didn't like it. Like I said, there were people who didn't particularly like the animations in the film. There were other people who didn't like the humour, and that's fine. We, we all have our different opinions, and the world would be very boring if we all liked the same thing. But for myself, I, if I'm honest, I adored this film. I, I thought it was awesome. I think there's a good chance it's in the top three films that I've watched since doing this podcast. It's that good. If it's not in the top three, it's definitely in the top five. Um, what would I give this out of ten? I think as I was writing this, I kind of had 8.5 out of 10 in my head. But the more I talk about it, the more... It's just going up, so I think I am going to give it a 9 out of 10. Maybe that might be a bit overly generous, but that's what it's getting. I I love this film. Like I've kind of alluded to, it's not necessarily for everyone. And I get some people don't like subtitles in films and things like that as well. But this is definitely a film I would recommend. And it is a bit annoying that it's not available to, you know, like stream for free anywhere. But it can be bought on Amazon Prime, it can be rented on Amazon Prime, and I do think it is worth the money. And I think even if you are someone who doesn't typically watch films with subtitles, give this one a go anyway. It really, it really is a good film. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. And, you know, if you have... Think about subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, as I say after pretty much every episode now, I believe. And please join me next week, where on Monday we are going over the Scorpion King 3. And then join me on Thursday, where I'm going to be looking at Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones films. And as I said at the end of my episode on He-Man, Masters of the Universe... I'm actually going to be going over each of the Indiana Jones films each Thursday, leading up to June 30th, as that's when the new Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny comes out. This is a film, 
I know the reviews are a bit mixed at the moment, but I'm still really excited for it because Indiana Jones is one of my favourite series of all time. Maybe even my favourite series of all time. And I am worried about this new film because I really want it to be good. And I know that my, my expectations when it comes to Indiana Jones films are quite high. But yeah, so that's the plan. I'm going to be going over all of the Indiana Jones films, you know, in order. Or at least in order of their release, leading up to the new release. I really hope you all have an excellent week, and hope to see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.